You know, you got a dream, you gotta stick with it. Tonight, we make history. You go for it with everything you got. A young boy, enchanted by mummies, vampires, and werewolves, fulfills his lifelong dream when he finds Frankenstein's body and attempts to bring it back to life. It is time! It's Master Earl! See it? More monsters. Sending him on a fantastic adventure into a mysterious world. Take a chance. Hey, Dad, you're like an inventor. Mm hmm? Could you do like Dr. Frankenstein? Sure, I could do that. That's really cool, Dad. Where fiction collides with fact. But would it work? Of course it would work. Fantasy turns into reality. Get in! Are you crazy? Need your help. What is it? It's the real thing. Dreams come alive. Frankenstein's monster disappeared. I had a tip you might know something about it, Earl. I'm just a kid. How could I do something like that? You took it, didn't you? What are those terrible things out there? So cool. They're evil. One in. Oh, you guys better not start without me. You can't do this. And young scientists bring a legend to life. You guys are insane. Burt Reynolds and Louise Fletcher star in this thrilling family adventure, Frankenstein. It's Welcome back to the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and today I have uh, I have two guests at the same time, which essentially means that uh, the world is about to rip itself asunder, and no one will know what the hell happened afterwards. Today we are talking about a film made by one of these two people, which is uh, boy, you want to talk about rare? That is rare. I don't know famous people, uh, but I do know Bob Tanell. <laughs> Robert Tanell, Bob Tanell. How you doing, buddy? It's a beautiful day. Ah, and with us also is a man I would like to refer to as a film historian, but I don't like him enough to, to give him that that title. <laughs> Anthony Taylor, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, and I want you to know that I've had that, that title superimposed under my image on, on Blu-ray, so you have no choice. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, I have to admit, I finally got around. I, I pushed myself, and uh, I was trying to do the uh, Space 1999 box set from uh -huh. uh, from Shout Factory in uh, in kind of production order, and I said, the hell with it, and leapt ahead to Dragon's Domain so that I could rewatch the, the episode and then listen to your commentary track. And uh, well, let me apologize in advance and say, what a great episode! <laughs> oh yeah, it, it 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 is a great episode, and 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 that is true. I hadn't seen I hadn't seen it since it caused nightmares in my youth. So you know, nice mm. nice to nice to have you uh, uh, walk us through that particular episode. I still haven't uh, I haven't uh, advanced to listen to you did one for the Metamorph as well, but I haven't listened to that one yet. And I'll apologize in advance for that as well. <laughs> 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 uh, and yeah, the, the the term film historian, it, I I I'm, I'm uncomfortable when that one is applied to myself as well. As a matter of fact, I had almost a nervous breakdown when I was told that uh, one company or another was going to call Troy Gwynn and myself uh, film historians, and and I had a little panic. I'm just a podcaster. I'm just a podcaster. Fuck, fuck, fuck. You know, and had a little 
had a little fit and uh, got got talked down off the ledge and talked into accepting it. And I'm just like, but I'm just a freak who reads books and talks like an idiot. So, um, isn't it, isn't it wonderful that that uh, looking deeply into those things that speak to your soul can give you an entirely new perspective in other people's eyes? Uh, yes, yes, or or just uh, make you think, wow, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, what I strange is I actually when I'm stressed out and stuff I put on like back episodes of your podcast because it relaxes me so I don't know what that's about me um I, so I what don't Bob, know either. Bob's saying in the, essentially is you put him to sleep which is <laughs> <laughs> I, I relax him in such a way that he's he's it relaxes him enough that he's comfortable but that uh, but not relaxed so much that his sphincter turns loose so that's good <laughs> let's hope yeah I I, I liken it to hanging out at the uh, convention bar, you know, after after the dealer room closes, hanging out with your friends. That's what I like about it. That's not a bad. That's not a bad analogy, especially uh, especially if it's uh, me and Mark Maddox. God knows. So, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Bob, the reason we are here today specifically is to talk about the film that you made back in the mid-90s. It came out in 1996. Uh, It's called Frankenstein and Me, and I have been a fan of this film since I caught up with it on VHS way back in the, I guess, late 90s? I can't can't pinpoint exactly when I saw this, but I got to say it was a joy to go back and catch up with this again just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, then again the other night because, well, let, let, let's let's get this out of the way. Uh, I still had to watch it on VHS. What the hell's going on here, Bob? You know, it's a it is a it is a great question, and it's one that I've asked for a for a long time. Uh, and there were decisions made initially with the release of the film that, you know, there there were just I just could not win fights, and um, I couldn't get a. a a widescreen transfer you know i couldn't get a, a 185 to one now they call 16.9 transfer couldn't get that done hmm. um which is irritating because you know you frame up the film a certain way and it, it i can't tell you the ludicrous conversations i had about that um and dvd was just hitting you know we had a laser disc release but even then i was very you know i was not happy uh with the decision making and um, I think that probably, I think, frankly, though, I think it's just fallen between the cracks. Uh, I think that the, the original distributors here and there lost sight of the film. Hmm. And then people look at it and they're like, oh, my God, you know, they they literally can't quite wrap their head around um, that maybe there's an audience for this because it's, you know, it's I mean, it is a children's film. I mean, it was it was made for kids. Um, kind of also sort of tracking that an adult wouldn't want to shoot themselves when they were had said to sit with their kids and watch it. <laughs> and um, it's, you know, the, as I understand it, I believe this year, the rights to uh, home video will revert from, I believe it's Lionsgate has it now. And they have, it has been, it has been relayed to me. They have no interest in dealing with the film. Um, and so, you know, I'm kind of hopeful that maybe in the next year or two, somebody will reach out to Richard Goudreau, Melanie uh, Productions up in Montreal, and um, maybe we could get something going because I just would, I just would love to see it transferred properly. And why? Well, I, I agree. I mean, that that's one of the questions I've had about the film is, 
it, it seems to me a perfect addition to Halloween viewing. I mean, I can see this film perfectly slotting into, uh, believe it or not, the Halloween viewing on uh, you know Disney Plus for God's sake. If this was something that you know that they had any that they had any interest in, it is of a tone and of a piece with films. And to be honest, it's better than a number of the things that that Disney was producing at the same time for the same kind of audience. Well, you know, and Disney bought it for the U.S. and it and it ran on the Disney Channel. And in fact, I was looking today. I was I had totally I'd forgotten that uh, TV Guide had put up a review. It was like a spotlight of the week that it was on Disney Channel, and I, I was pleased to see they called. They said it was a very charming film. And I was like, all oh, right, on, because uh, I'm so hard on everything I ever do. You know, I just like yeah. hate everything. Um, you know, but that you was know, kind of nice. Bob, the first time I met you uh, was in 1996 at Chiller Theater Show in New Jersey. And I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel with Bob Burns and a bunch of other friends. And you walked up and introduced yourself to Bob and said, hey, hey uh, I made this little movie called Frankenstein and Me. And Bob and I were the only people who had seen it. And I remember just leaping off the couch and going, oh, my God, you made that. What a great film. Uh, and I had seen it on Disney Channel um, two or three times at that point. So uh, that I was uh, I was going to mention that yeah, I, I, I'm surprised that it's not ste- uh, streaming, steaming, <laughs> that it's not streaming on Disney Plus. But I guess if the rights are, are, are at Lionsgate and kind of murky at the moment, then hopefully something something will open up and, and, and that'll happen. But I agree with Rodney. It would be a great uh, it would be a great addition to that. Uh, to that vault that's available from them. I appreciate it. And I, and I kind of hope, and you know, and I totally not about me or anything. I, I you know, I, I always think back as, as a fanboy that God, you know, if we could have had commentary tracks from, you know, from Lugosi and, uh, Bor- you know, and how wonderful this oh, would have yeah. been. And we fuss about that, you know, Oh, I wish I knew what happened or, you know, you get so obsessive and I love, you know, when friends like, you know, David Scar or Gary John Rhodes or somebody like they go so deep and you're like, my God, how'd they get this information? And you you kind of hang on every word. But honestly, it, you know, kind of everything deserves that good or bad. I wish that there was that sort of I mean, I'm married to a historian and she's really made me understand the importance. God, she's building a, 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 a giant, important project as part of this commission that she's president of that's uh tracking all the walls that were built by this the ccc in the 30s in west virginia these kind of stone retaining walls and things this infrastructure projects and and the surface of it you're like so what and then you go deeper and you're like my god you know this is such a story in an american story you know like it would just be great i wish i could do it just if nothing else so that you know there is a record of this it's just it's history history is interesting big and small you know and um it would be nice to have the chance to do that. I, I wish I could have done it, you know, when, when Bert was still alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I don't know if that makes sense. I just really went and rambled off into the CCC in the middle. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, uh, that's why you're here today, Paul man. Nash. Aren't you guys supposed to be talking about Paul Nashy? And by the way, <laughs> going back, though, was that the chiller, too? That I remember that moment, but I'm trying to remember. Is that the one that Jess Franco was at? Or was that the next one? Because I got to meet him, which was actually really. I think Jess was would have been the next one because I don't recall meeting him, and I was not at the '97 show. I don't think so. It was kind of in a bad mood until he and he didn't really want to talk to me until I said I mentioned I had made a film with his nephew Ricardo, and I was friends with Ricardo Franco, and then all of a sudden I was his best friend, and then he the whole week. Uh, well, 
just out of curiosity, um, I know you and I've talked about this movie a little bit in the past. Just some of the, I know that there were, the, the film was not originally envisioned the way it uh, was eventually made. And of course, one of the first things that I notice is, I, I, I know you. And so when I see the, the credits, and you're credited as coming up with the story, and there are other names on the, the quote-unquote screenplay. I do wonder, well, how did that come about? Because I know Bob, and I know Bob is a damn good writer, so what was it about his original concept that either got altered or was thought to be you know, too much this or too much that? Um, what, what went down with uh, the screenplay credit here? Well, uh, quite honestly, Canadian content, you know, you... Um, I had to work with other writers um, or, you know, I could be the director or I could be the sole writer, but I couldn't do both. And, you know, and I had good relationships with, with Richard, who's a dear friend and still he's like family and, and David Sherman, he and I had worked together previously and David was a great guy. And, um, and so, you know, it really, my bigger problems from a screenplay perspective, um, well, I mean, I'm the title change was, was was a, quite frankly a heartbreak to me you know there was this concerted effort um to sort of push the film uh as a as more of a you know i didn't envision it being a super commercial piece quite frankly and and not because i was like you know out there you know fighting for my art it, it's just my influences and and my influences in a big way yeah, uh, it was yeah. funny because this film and the first film I did, Kids in the Round Table, you know, kind of did really well in Europe. And, like, people really – it was much more appreciated over there, and particularly Kids in the Round Table. I mean, I got, and that was in the Berlin Film Festival with that in competition, you know, in Kinderfest. I mean, that was a big deal. Um, but what I realized inadvertently, I think, my sensibility for children's storytelling – was heavily influenced by all the films I would watch on the CBS Children's Film Festival, you know, with Kukla Fran and Ollie, you know, the, and I would yeah. see these films like Fatty and Skinny and I mean, these different European films that were quite serious and quite um, uh, compelling and not always or, you know, you know, I'll tell you another film that was like hugely influential to me uh, was a was a TV movie called um jt and it was about a, a um an african-american kid inner city really kind of bad time single mom and he adopts this cat i mean that's all it is huh. and it's um it's just wonderful do you guys remember that film no uh, no oh it, it's just and the direct i believe it's the director who went on to do um god now i can't think he was kind of a significant director uh, for a while. Um, I'm going to have to. Uh, I should have thought of that sooner. But anyway, as I'm getting really long, I'm going way back around on this. But, you know, I didn't really see. I wasn't thinking of. I loved Home Alone, by the way. But that wasn't the film that I was setting out to make. And originally, as envisioned, the film was called Mojave Frankenstein. And it was it was I had envisioned it as an adult indie film. I mean, Earl wasn't going to be 12. He was going to be, you know, 27. And um, I just couldn't get traction with it almost a few times. I remember uh, like at Vestron back in the day when they were looking at getting into production. I know they really, really liked it. Um, but I just couldn't get it up and running. And um, <clears throat> and this was the compromise I had to make. And, and was, you know, it's got to be kids. And then the more I got into it, the more I liked it because... 
you know, I think the best storytelling for children doesn't insult them. Yeah. You know, and tries to be more, you know, and the best of storytelling is, is teaching kids things, you know, even the, the dark sort of, you know, brothers grim and stuff, you know, they're all coded messaging for how to get through things. And I just felt like there was an opportunity there. Well, you sent me down a rabbit hole really quickly. JT was uh, an hour-long family drama, came out in 1969. Uh, and, yeah, I have never heard of this thing before. Um, Janet Dubois, uh, the director you're talking about, Robert M. Young? Yes. God, I couldn't think of his name. He did Short Eyes in 77. Yeah. Look at that Look at that resume. Wow. It's pretty impressive. One Trick Pony, Rich Kids, Saving Grace, Extremities. He directed Extremities. Holy crap! Yeah. Uh, so like like comedic fare then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the, he he also ended up directing uh, uh, some episodes of the uh, the the uh, Battlestar Galactica reboot for some reason. So hey, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Several episodes, five episodes of it. So. Well, there you go. But. But JT, yeah, I'd never heard of this before. I'll try to track this down. This sounds really interesting. But and again, it wasn't so specific to any one particular film. It just it, it sort of cultivated a sensibility, I think, of me as a young person, um, of associating children's films with a little, you know, heavier going, you know, stuff like My Side of the Mountain, and you know, I, hmm. and I think part of it too is that. Okay, when I was a little kid, when I was like little, little, you know, like four or five years old, and I, my dad would do like a lot of carpentry things, and I wanted tools. And so for my birthday or Christmas or something, my parents got me a toolbox. And it was all basically fake tools <laughs> they couldn't do. <laughs> and I was so insulted, you know, and I wasn't like rude. I wasn't like that kid. I was a nice little kid, but I was just like, you got to be shitting me. I need stuff that works. I don't, I need, you know, and I think in that it's weird because I like often do fantasy based product projects, but I think it was Truffaut that said, you know, we're basically there's, they're either the descendants of Georges Millier or, you know, the Lumiere brothers. And I think I'm more descended from the Lumiere brothers. Like I, everything that I want <laughs> has to have a certain plausibility to it. Yeah. You know, and, and I know that's weird because some of my comic books and things aren't very plausible, but you know, generally I sort of gravitate towards more of a, um, like I love neorealism and I, it, the, I guess I'm just hardwired maybe my Italian gene to kind of want things to be really grounded in reality no matter how depressing which uh, <laughs> is well just out of curiosity let's let's uh, let's upfront this for people the movie takes place in uh, the early 70s in uh, the Mojave Desert uh, kind of um, would say a rural small town community the the, the main character is and, and it's hard. <laughs> It's hard to not read the main character as a, a kind of a version of you, <laughs> but, but you know, not 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 that uh, someone coming to it without any knowledge of you would would make that jump. But I just immediately go, oh, okay, okay, yeah, that's 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 little Bob. But the 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 fascination with monsters, the the obsession with uh, uh, well, let's just say an imaginative uh, interior life that uh, springs out all over, of course, his childhood bedroom and is happily encouraged by his father who dotes on him because his father has uh, has had in his past a large amount of desire to be someone in the creative community himself and made a stab at it in his younger days and wasn't able to make that happen and now is a happy family man, a truck driver. And 
this is uh, this is essentially the story of an, a specific incident in this young boy's life as he entices <laughs> he entices his younger brother who's also monster obsessed and uh, a couple of friends to step over the step just a little bit over the legal line when um, something falls off the back of a truck. Let's put it that way. Um, the joys of this film are multitudinous. And I do have, you know, when rewatching this film for the first time since I've known you, which was a bit of a shock to realize that aspect of it, I, I, I did find myself immediately going, well, how much of this is autobiographical? So let me just ask you up front, how much of this is autobiographical? Um, really, it's not, there are things in it that are autobiographical. I mean, but first of all, like I had incredible parents you know, we lived, we grew up in a very encouraging, very loving home. Um, and in fact, I remember a couple years ago when Feast of Seven Fishes came out, like all this great stuff was happening for myself and for my brother, Jeff. And Jeff and I were going down the road, going to something. And he goes, you know, wonder why all this worked out for us, you know, because we've had really interesting lives and careers, however, up and down. And I was like, dude, we hit the genetic jackpot. You know, we just had incredible parents. And we have stability, and I don't. I think we take that for granted, and a lot of people, yeah, you know, didn't. Um, but that's not to say that there weren't things. You know, the only way my mom could get me to behave was not that I was real bad, but I was get you know fighting or whatever with my brothers. Um, was to take away dark shadows. You know, spanking didn't do much. Uh, <laughs> but you, you know, you forbid me to see dark shadows. You know, I would, I would kind of straighten up. But, but there are a few things that that I one of the things that I wanted to do with the film that is autobiographical. I mean, I named the teacher Mrs. Purdue after my third grade teacher Mrs. Purdue, who I realized within a week had zero interest in actually educating us and she was like a fascist. She you were going to do your work yeah. and then she would put busy work on the board, which I is so offensive to me. Yeah. And she was one of those people that tries to make kids color inside the lines and the, uh. be good little soldiers and I rebelled. You know, I just, uh, but I did it, you know, I mean, because my mom also taught at the school and I wasn't going to, you know, I was, it wasn't Attica, you know, but I, uh, <laughs> you know, I just, I just quit doing the busy work and she never noticed. Um, but occasionally, you know, it's that teacher, that person that, you know, looks in your notebook and sees you're drawing Batman or Dracula or something. And, you know, you're an idiot, you're a loser or whatever, you know, why are you doing this? You know, why can't you be like everybody else? And so that was that was a big part of it. Now, I mean, there was some resistance on the part of my parents to some of the stuff. I mean, you know, they always think you immediately are interested in, you know, devil worship or blood drinking or something. And you're like, that's yeah. not it at all. Um, and I know my it was ironic that I didn't know. Is my dad, you know, really didn't like the film thing initially when I wanted to go work. You know, I went to work for George Romero and all that. They weren't, he and my mother and my mom was afraid I was going to become a gypsy. Like, they were all worried. Until my dad saw my name at the end of Creep Show, And then after that, he loved it. He was cool. And my dad's in Frankenstein and me. You know, he's like, it, you know, that was all great. But what I didn't know until some years after he passed away in, uh, in 99, uh, somehow I got a hold of his, I saw a yearbook. And under my dad, his ambitions were to work in movies. Wow. And he never told me that. Wow. And that's amazing. Yeah, that kind of, you know, that kind of tripped me out a little bit. I was like, my God, you know, he never mentioned it. And um, 
But I think too, you know, growing up, you know, West Virginia in, in like small town, you know, Appalachian, although we're more like Pittsburgh than we are like, you know, Southern West Virginia or something. But, you know, as my wife puts it, you know, getting, going to go be a movie director, you know, or something, that's what people do from other places. Like, it's like, you don't do that when yeah. you're here, even though plenty of people do. You know, Lawrence Kasdan went to high school down the road here. I mean, you know, plenty, I mean, plenty of super successful people, but they're, but I think oftentimes they're sort of escaping the gravitational pull of, uh, of a status quo that says, you know, that's for, that's for people from somewhere else or more educated or whatever. Um, it certainly <clears throat> happened to Homer Hickam that way, right? Uh, to an extent, absolutely. I think so. You know, he had to go out and just make it happen and where he was from is, is far different from where i'm from believe me i mean we had yeah. Colm. it's a whole nother world down there uh, i think you know bob you and i kind of uh grew up around it, you talked about your parents being worried you might get into satan worshiping and we were certainly growing up in the middle of that satanic panic right uh, and and of course the uh the the tail end of the 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 kind of the monster monster kid a lifestyle um, with the last uh, issues of famous monsters that actually had monsters in them. Um, and one of the things that really struck me about Frankenstein and me when I saw it was it was the first film that I had ever seen that actually encompassed that mon that monster kid sort of lifestyle and was nostalgic about it. There had been uh, kind of whiffs of it around um, seeing things when I was younger, like the Secrets of, ja of Dracula's Castle on Disney. Oh, I love uh, where they're you know making Dracula films and stuff, but that wasn't really uh, a look back at it, and 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 didn't really have the whole picture there. What was uh, what was the? I mean, I know that 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 was part of what came from you in in the uh, 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 in the thrust of the film, making that kid such a um, such a, a a participant in that lifestyle, but. Did you understand that, that nobody else had really done that before? I don't think I was that cognizant of it. Um, I think, you know, you know, now, like, thank God people review your films or write things about your work. <laughs> like, like Tim Lucas one time, like, would watch a couple <laughs> of my films and he just started taking them apart and telling, it was like I was being on the couch, you know, getting psychoanalyzed. And I was like, wow, I didn't, he's like, you have to have this, this and this. And there were things I genuinely didn't understand about myself or about the work. You know, I don't, um, and I, but what I think, what I'm realizing now, and I didn't really realize it until after Seven Fishes, um, when I work specifically, it seems like it resonates. Um, and Frankenstein and me was, yeah. is hyper specific. And I would say, and this, by this way, this doesn't make me a good director, but I'm always like, just feel so weird talking about myself, but it doesn't, it's not, it, whether it's good or bad, that it, it, this isn't a good or bad thing. It's just, frankly, I'm just a part of who I am. When I'm specific in my work, it seems like it resonates. And like, that's like, I think it was the LA Times said that about Feast, you know, it's like this, this film is just so specific and so observation, you know, it's really looking and that elevates the, the narrative. And I think because I've, I have real problems with Frankenstein and me's I hate to even call it that. I just want to call him a hobby Frankenstein. I have I have problems with narrative issues and things that sort of were were thrust upon the film for for marketing for uh, international sales purposes that I had to do. Um, but 
I know that the this I know that the specificity of it uh, does invest the film with some. I don't want to say power, but you know, or some sort of resonance. If that makes any sense. I sound like a film school professor now. But no, it does make sense. And it and it makes sense to me that the guy who made Feast of the Seven Fishes is the same guy that made Frankenstein and me. Because it, it like you said there that it's a it's a very straightforward story from a single point of view uh, of somebody in a in a uh, kind of a world that has been built spherically around them. Um, and it does it resonated with me as fishes does and i'm i've i did not grow up in you know in pennsylvania or any uh, so i don't have any kind of frame of reference from that but it's rendered so well that uh, it drew me in i'm glad to hear it because i do think there is something to be said for that you know when you see i mean some of the films that have influenced me the most uh, i give you a for example is a, a local hero oh yeah one of my top five yeah yeah, it's just an incredible film, and I think it's finally being rediscovered, which I'm happy about. It's like, and it's actually crazy enough. I think it's my favorite soundtrack of all time, which is I, I don't disagree. Um, but that film, you have zero doubts as you're watching that film that you are absolutely in a real time and place. Uh, it, it's it mm-hmm. just transports you, and you are there. What I wanted, one of the things though that was motivating Frankenstein and me is the way children are adaptive. Okay. And the way your mind will paint these things. And I think not that they were little kids, but I know, um, Peter Jackson, you know, in, um, beautiful creatures or heavenly creatures. I always get the heavenly creatures, heavenly creatures, which I like. And in fact, shares an actor, uh, Jean Garin or, or or you see him on Facebook as Edward, Edward Leduc. Um, was uh, the doctor in Frankenstein and me, um, and he's Orson Welles in Heavenly Creatures. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's a Montreal guy. He's a friend. He's a he's a good dude. Um, but uh, you know the way when they go into those fantasy sequences and you you see them kind of world building, and that's what you know kids do a lot. And what I would do is when I was a kid, and you don't see them now. But in the you know in the '60s and '70s, there were a lot of ruins of old industrial complexes and coal mines all over North Central West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And sometimes, you know, if you just kind of squinted your eye at it, you know, it was like, man, that could be Dracula's castle, or that could be <clears throat> that could be Frankenstein's you know tower laboratory. And and I would dream about making these Super 8 films where they would you know I would shoot them, I'd get into one of these places, and it would it felt European to me, you know, it felt like these big hulking structures. And when I got to California um, and initially did not love the desert and then fell in love with the desert, it took a few years for me to understand it. Um, and in fact, I just shot in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago and I got to spend a lot of time out in the Mojave places. I used to kind of bum around and God, I love it still. You know, it's just, I'm happy where I live, but anytime I can go visit that country, it's just so spectacular. But Whenever there's kind of a man-made footprint against that, it's really, really interesting. And also the fact that, you know, when the beginning of Dracula in 31, when they're coming down the hill in black and white, like, oh, look, they're here and they're in Transylvania. It's like, no, they're in the Hollywood Hills. Um, but in black and white, it, it creates this wonderful sort of never-never land. And I think, you know, 
the filmmakers were squinting a little bit and they were seeing this landscape become something else. You know, I mean, if Sherwood Forest had had that many gaps between the trees, how the hell was Robin Hood ever really going to, you know, hide from anybody, um, you know, out at uh, Malibu Lake or whatever. But sometimes in the course of shooting, you know, through the years, you would visit these old ghost towns or whatever, or, or I'd, you'd be camping out in the desert and you'd find this old mine structure or something. And it was that same thing. It was like, wow, you know, if I was a kid growing up out here and I became sort of, you know, super interested in Southern California lifestyle. I love, I, it was fascinated. Like, you know, people were constantly trying to imprint their dreams on that landscape. And a lot of times the landscape can't support the dreams. I mean, we're seeing that right now, you know, environmentally, Yeah. but I was sort of interesting. And I, um, there was something about like where we shot like Victorville and that something about the landscape that really hadn't changed since the fifties and sixties. And it was very easy to tap into both, uh, you know, that, the, 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 the canvas that Earl could paint his dreams on, but also, you know, you could picture him going into a place to get a comic book or something. And you, you like would recognize that place because it would have that. Oh, yeah. It, it, I mean, as someone who grew up, I was, you know, I was born in 68. So uh, my, my young childhood is the 70s. And there were so many little images in this, even though, of course, I grew up in Tennessee. And this takes place in California. There are so many one to one images that are in this film that are things that I remembered very well from my childhood. Uh, and weirdly enough, some of the things, and I don't know how this, this happened. This just had to be happenstance, but some of the things in the hospital, because I grew up with a, a grandmother who was a nurse. And so I would spend, you know, a lot of hours whiling them away in the hallways of a hospital. And it's like, wow, some of this feels like my childhood. And it really is odd that it does. And it goes back to that whole idea of the more specific you become, Strangely enough, the more general it becomes at the same time, if you drill into those details, some some one of those details is going to tag different members of the audience in a way that immediately brings them exactly to the point where the characters are, where you remember some detail and that opens up this whole little thing in your head that connects to a lot of other memories and you realize that time and place is becoming more and more alive. So the, your, your point earlier about as soon as you started getting really specific, the, 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 the kind of the storytelling opens up. You're right. And I started to notice that more and more this time around through the film. And, of course, it only emphasizes how much I want to see this damn movie in uh, a high-definition transfer it, because the cinematography is exceptional here. It's beautifully photographed and of course you had to have known it you can you can sense your love of this location all of these uh, all of these uh, shots of the the sunset of uh, these these uh, desert vistas uh, they're, 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 they're even little shots, little very specific things that, you know, would be in any kind of setting like this if you pay attention to it, which is just like at one point they're out in the workshop. It's, it's actually just the main character, just the young boy, just Earl. And he's moving around a little bit and he stirs up just a little bit of dust that gets perfectly caught in the light. Uh, and it's just little details like that. It just adds so much to what's going on there. It's it's absolutely beautiful, man. This it's criminal that there's not an HD version of this already. Yeah, I'm pretty bummed out I, uh, about that. <laughs> and uh, well, that was not my intention. <laughs> no, no, no. It, and I, you know, it's like I and I 
look, you know, credit where credit's due. I mean, my ex-wife was the DP and she did a great job, you know. Um, and also, you know, I had um, one of my best friends, a guy named John Bick, is, who is Louise Fletcher's son. Uh, and John, because, you know, we were shooting such crazy schedules, I would send John um, out uh, with a camera guy and I would say, can you get me this, this and this? And he would go out and kind of second unit and get really great stuff and then you know i was lucky to get the helicopter you know the, the tyler mount to get the the yeah, big yeah. stuff because i did i wanted to sort of get that the scope of the desert you know across but you know, i want to go back to if i could for a minute on this the the specifics of the thing because when you were asking you know was i aware the truth is i think even five or six years later you could not have made the film under the same circumstances because people were becoming aware of what this ip was worth right this is before bela jr prevailed this is before the postage stamps this is before that sudden oh, burst yeah. of the monster kid stuff was everywhere and was being discussed and it was just explosive if, if you recall right and the fanex shows were just huge chiller was mm. huge and you, everyone and suddenly all barriers between us who love this stuff and our heroes were vanished and it was just man because there was still a lot of people alive even from the 30s and 40s and, and you guys know what i'm talking about I mean, it was very yeah and, and yeah. so suddenly everything was more collectible but at that time you know like getting you know dan curtis very kindly um said sure you can use anything you want from dark shadows you just can't show people uh but you can use bob covert's music like you know and so to get to do that which for me you know i and i was and part of the visual aesthetic you know um i think was uh is very much dn arbus in places uh it's like i love that I, that tv i'm like i kind of want that sunburst clock tv look and i want to see dark shadows on there and you could hate this whole movie but if you were a kid <laughs> when that show was on that you know this i know this <laughs> moment is going to grab you and yeah and george and everyone from image 10 being kind enough to let me use night of the living dead i mean they had just kind of gotten that restored release you know because i pulled that image off the laser disc actually um mm -hmm. uh, dick smith saying yeah go ahead you know or um and of course Famous monsters at the time, there were issues. That was the the Ray Ferry era, and that's how I got Forey in the film. But you know, I'm telling you, just a few years later, that wouldn't have happened. And where I really ran into a wall, and I think the film suffers from. Um, and oddly enough, it's it is much easier now to get music, popular music, than it was back then. It just and I had gotten spoiled because on Kids at the Round Table I had gotten, I was in love with a Murray Head song uh, called "Say It Ain't So," and it's a great song. It doesn't really have anything to do with Kids at the Round Table, but like he let me have the song for like nothing, and it's just, you know, and I was like, man, you know, I I love that I got to do that, and <clears throat> I didn't need a lot, but you know, obviously I wanted Monster Mash, and I think they wanted a hundred thousand dollars, and it was like, you know, that's not happening, <laughs> and then. But, you know, I had, um, can't think of the name of the band now, damn it. But I had a scene that was eventually shortened where uh, Miriam, when the, the women are driving through the desert and she's kind of talking about trying to work and take care of the kids and stuff. And when you dropped in that, here comes that rainy day feeling again. Remember that song? Um, yeah. It was electric and we just could not get the rights. Mm. And I eventually 
drastically shortened the scene um, because it it had ceased to, you know, I just couldn't do it. Um, and it's just like I'm still on Seven Fishes. I'm just amazed that I got those songs and that people wanted to do it. And I'm still missing a couple songs. And what's ironic, they were songs that were like not nearly as well known as the others. And people were like, yeah, we want $50,000. And I'm like, Bob Geldof's letting me have this song for basically nothing because he knows <laughs> that people need to hear this music. So they'll keep downloading and still be interested. And you want to hit the dude from Cleveland. <laughs> I think you're making a mistake here. But whatever um you know. people people sometimes look upon uh, a possible payday as the only possible payday and it's like not always man mm, mm, mm. no it's uh, it's uh well you know and that's where honestly uh, you know we were t- i was talking earlier a little bit about dan curtis i think that was what was always smart that dan curtis did dan curtis in a way kind of did with dark shadows what the dead did you know it's like we're just gonna give you this here just go mm-hmm. Because then you'll keep listening to it and talking about it. And um, in that sort of, you know, spirit of abundance as opposed to a scarcity mentality. You know, I think, man, I really took this thing down a weird, weird road, weird road. There's somebody sitting at home because, man, this hasn't been interesting since he mentioned Jess Franco. well you know also the the indie uh film landscape was uh a lot different in 96 it was a lot bigger than it is now too yeah Um, but it's also in the process thinking like okay well this goes to uh uh goes to sundance and becomes you know something big then yeah we're going to get a lot of downloads we're going to get on a a, on a soundtrack album release and it's going to go crazy um, and so they probably were, you know, I'm sure Geldof was like, yeah, what does is, what is it hurt me to do this, you know? No, it's smart. It just creates a new generation of fans. Absolutely. And, and but, you know, back then, too, I, I think what I didn't realize was happening was that the indie movement was already being co-opted. Right. You know, the Disneyfication of everything was it was taking off. I mean, it was, you know, however they got there, the Weinsteins, however they got there. I mean, they really had upset the apple cart. Um, Mm -hmm. partially through just making better movies and partially through throwing money at the right things at the right time. Um, but it, it, it had a sense of promise, you know, in that, but I was, you know, I mean, I don't know. I always have these sort of, somebody said, I'm like consciously low stakes. (laughs) It was a comment. I was like, I kind (laughs) of, um, but, but but I mean, that's, that's a great place to be because it's an unoccupied space for the most part. You know what I'm saying? If, if Marvel, everything is, you know, the, the saving the universe and you come in with a low stakes story that really hits people hard emotionally, you're a winner. That's, that's so interesting. You say that because I think like I, on paper, I should not have loved WandaVision as much as I did Hmm. because I'm sort of burned out. But WandaVision so perfectly uh, and nostalgically captures, you know, what it was like to read Avengers comics in the in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and is not embarrassed because a lot of times, you know, these shows are embarrassed. You know, they're these films are embarrassed. They don't want to have costuming a certain way. And part of which I understand, by the way, I saw a guy in a Hawkman costume once at Wizard Philly. And I laughed and I said to my brother, I go, my God, if Hawkman ever showed up, criminals would die laughing. Because right. look at the colors. <laughs> looks bizarre but it looks fabulous you know in a, in a you know in a 1943 comic book but you know wandavision just throws its arms around it and it isn't about saving the universe you know it's about healing from you know incredible loss and and that merged with the sort of 
metaphorically, I think the rage, um, the oh, the rage at the loss. At the it's loss. it's it's the grief. It's the grief, and the rage at having the grief and having to deal with the grief. It's it, yeah. It's yeah. It's both. Which is also a very strong motivator for Earl and Frankenstein. It, it is well that hey, by the, yeah, and that's um and like, that's what I want to I want to br- bring this into a talk about how you how how you put this cast together. Uh, I know you had worked with some of these actors before. Yeah. Um, you know, again, there were certain quotas I had to do because the film was shot half California, half Quebec. And so there were there was there were forces at play there that you had to deal with as part of the financing model. Um, and and that can be challenging in a in a province of, you know, six million people of whom six hundred thousand English is their first language. And you have to populate a film from that. And sometimes hmm. maybe you could bring some people from Ontario or whatever. Uh, I think Ryan. I think Ryan lived outside of Ottawa at that time. Oh well, let's let's make sure people are aware. We're talking about Ryan Gosling, who uh, I believe this was his first film. It was his first film, yeah, yeah. Um, and he he's got. Uh, I mean, he he shows very 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 easily uh, the qualities that he would later assert quite a, quite well on screen as well. And so uh, that's that's another little point of interest. But um, and- how did you end up? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and I was going to say, though, and that was part of the reason why, and Jamie was wonderful. You know, I love Jamie. Um, but I felt that, you know, Ryan, it was, I couldn't see him getting to the vulnerability, not because of his acting chops. He was just so damn charismatic. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, for whatever reason, even though Jamie was a really great looking kid, that he could, I don't know, it seemed easier to believe that maybe he was still sort of, ner- he was still awkwardly kind of finding his way um as a well i thought it was perfect casting because the character that ryan plays the kid that ryan plays is that kid in the group who would be the first one with a girlfriend yeah 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 exactly um but uh hey by the way i'm going to say this and we'll go to the cast but i I i don't think i've ever no one's ever noticed this and i don't think i've ever said it in an interview but do you know why his name is earl williams no, because I love his girl Friday and Earl Williams. You know, is the poor guy that they're trying to that they want to <laughs> execute. And I just always love that guy. You know, the best <laughs> and, um, you know, and he's he's a guy who's misunderstood. And yeah, so I just wanted to make sure people knew that, like, you know, I love his girl Friday, and that's why it's Earl. So <laughs> weird. You're such a nerd, Bob. I know, I know. He's such a cinephile lunatic. Oh. Yeah, it's awful. But it's well, I, well, I, I got to say, the young guy, the Jameson, uh, is it is it Boulanger? Boulanger, Jamie Boulanger. Boulanger. So he's yeah. French Canadian. Yes, okay. yes, yes, he is, and he was in Kids Around Table as well. Um, he's he's quite he's quite good in the role, and I have to say, uh, where he where he really sells it is that scene with the uh, with the principal near in the latter latter part of the movie. That's that that is a well done scene for any actor, much less a child actor. Yeah, and he uh, Jamie is, is again. He came from such a well adjusted family and um, loved to play baseball. And I haven't seen him forever and ever, and I hate that because he was. I love these kids. I mean, we they were. There's a real responsibility when you're working with children and um the thing i like about kids is they don't oddly enough like they don't they kind of don't lie to you and they don't want to be lied to um they want Mm -hmm. you know they were really were taking this quite seriously Uh, it was really fun you know living in the hotel and in the desert 
and I had gotten a stack of VHSs and they would watch and they took it very seriously. And so they watched like, you know, Dracula and I'm trying to remember everything I had them watch, like the Wolfman, Frankenstein and, and they, but they really, they really got into dark shadows. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I wanted them to have some sort of sense memory of this stuff, but then they started looking at the magazines and, you know, and it was, um, it was really, you know, it was, it was just cool. You know, it was just cool kind of indoctrinating them as it were. Um, you know, and the other little boy, Ricky, maybe, um, great kid, but he's had quite a, a good career among other things. He's in, uh, Zach and Mary make a porno. Um, yeah, I was looking at his career. He had a, he had a pretty hefty role in, uh, one of my favorite TV series of the past few years, preacher. That's right. He did. Didn't he? Um, yeah, I was a big fan of the comics, and I haven't really caught up with the show yet. I'm going to have to do that. It's 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 its own thing, but it's it, I mean, don't get me wrong, it, it retains the spirit of the comics. I love the comics as well. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, they 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 did a they did a fine job. I got to tell you. Yeah, I'm going to have to. I, it's it's terrible. To, I mean, I just don't watch much television or anything. I'm always, I'm like I'm so busy. Um, and I don't watch enough. I need to. I need to watch more. Um, especially though, this year I've, I've found there's some films that are really sort of speaking to me more, and um, stuff like I like. I really love Nomadland and and Minari. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're those are the kinds of films I miss. And I, I think perversely the the binging scenario and these kind of meta these big huge arcs that TV shows are doing are actually opening up space for smaller, more intimate uh, stories, which is, which is exciting for me, you know? Um, and the, the, the strange thing is that it seems to me that to a large degree, the, uh, the small budget and mid range budget films are now being produced for streaming services, which, um, which honestly just means that the indie film stuff that would have been on a big screen or at Sundance or whatever in the nineties has kind of shifted in a way where your your initial audience is going to be a home audience, and I, th- I think as long as these things are getting produced, I'm perfectly happy with it. I just want those stories out there so that I can see them. Well, and I mean, this is, I mean, I, you know, I've just come. I'm at peace with change, and it took me a long time to do that because I would get really angry when, like, post nine one one, I was so angry, obviously for the obvious reasons, but also I saw the business model that had supported me and allowed me to thrive go away, and I mean, really sent me into the wilderness for mm. a long time unable to get a directing gig and you know and but it forced me to get better as a writer and so at that at some point you just look around and go you know what it really doesn't matter if i like this circumstance or not it's the circumstance right Uh, how am i going to adapt to it and it i do want to get back to the casting but i want to say this because it it was i had gotten to the point where i was very very blessed from about 2011 on i was getting to just make stuff it was commercials or documentaries or music videos or producing a feature here and there and and never stopped having materials optioned or bought or whatever i mean i was you know and doing the comic book thing and it was you know i was working in so many different areas and um but it kind of made peace with the fact i guess nobody wants you to direct a movie you know you're done and i genuinely i would say and i genuinely meant this that i had gotten to the point that i made no distinction between a two-minute and two-hour movie and inevitably some smart ass film student or somebody would say, yes, that's the guy who can't get a two hour movie. Fair enough. 
but now I can get mm. two hour movies and I say the same thing. So, you know, um, man, I'm, the story to story and, and, and telling it the right way is, uh, a, a skill that very few people possess. So it doesn't matter to me whether the story is two minutes, two hours or two days. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's the, and this technology yeah, has given us yeah. the opportunity for expression. That's unbelievable. And believe me, Absolutely, yeah. as, as disappointed as I am in myself and, and the majority of the work I've ever done, um, I never, ever lose the gratitude for the opportunity to get to do those things. You know, I remember when I was, it was shortly after Frankenstein and me and, you know, I was dating my wife and I said to her at one time, I said, I mean, I wasn't exactly sure on the math, but I was pretty sure there were more guys playing professional football and getting paid for that. And then we're getting to do what I was getting to do and getting paid for. Um, and that's, man, that the oxygen's pretty thin up there. Um, and especially when you see the attrition rate. Uh, I saw a thing that was, I think it was last year or two years ago on Facebook. And it was, you know, Fred Decker, who's a great guy and, you know, the Monster Squad. And he's just a great guy, a talented guy. And someone said, you know, why won't you go direct? And he just was like, what did you, why won't I? What do you think's happening here? You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like you know, what do you think we're doing? I mean, uh, this is hard. Um, but I want to. I did want those, those those opportunities are thin on the ground, man. It doesn't matter how talented you are, right? It, yeah, it's a. There's so many factors at play, um, and you just you just have to roll with it. But I I, I wanted to go back to the cast a minute because I wanted to mention how some things unfolded. Because because Kids at Round Table had it was done and it was making money. It was selling really, really well international territories. Hmm. I mean it was a it did shockingly well. Um like they like I got checks, you know, they couldn't hide them. Uh and but it that was sort of unfolding and I had gotten for that picture I had gotten Michael Ironside, which I was really happy about and we we worked I mean I actually wish I, I need to reach out to Michael it's been forever I haven't seen him um, but I had uh, gotten Malcolm McDowell and what happened was we started that film and I, I had to have somebody to play Merlin and back then I was getting these really long shooting schedules I had like 30 days and I we started and Richard said to me he goes look man you got to get me four days of good footage or I'm going to lose my house. You got to get this done so we can get the rest of the financing in place. <laughs> day, I think it was day three. He came up because they love the dailies they're in. So you're good, but we got to get Merlin. And I had previously, I had always wanted to work with Malcolm and I tried to get him for another picture as a producer and we couldn't even get to him. And he was shooting tank girl in Italy. And so I just wrote a letter. Uh, his agent said, you know, send him a letter, see what he wants to do. And we sent this letter. And I was standing on the set and uh, my producer got a phone call and got big eyes and he came over with his, you know, block cell phone at the time and handed it to me. And I go, hello, he goes, uh, Bob, this is Malcolm McDowell. I got your letter. I really appreciate everything you said. I'll be there Monday. And it was like, whoa, you know, well, <laughs> Holy hell. yeah. And that helped. And that really, really helped. And so when Frankenstein and me came along and I was, um, I asked Louise Fletcher because, you know, I, 
because it was like family, you know, uh, I would, John and I had gone back to, we, I met her son, John, and we became, I met two of my best friends in the business. I met the same day shooting a cheap trick music video in Franklin Canyon in like 1984. Um, and I just, I think that, but I think when Louise came, she was probably like, Oh look, you know, Bobby's making the movie, you know, or something like, <laughs> uh, and she's just wonderful in it. I mean, I'm so, I'm so, so grateful to her. Um, oh, she's fantastic. I mean, she played the, the character. It's the character that you that you you despise throughout the story, and she's so good at it. And I love the the the, the range of of opportunities you give to her within that character. It's she's she's really fantastic. She love, really, let's be honest. She won an Academy Award for playing a similar character. So yeah. <laughs> yes, not yeah. a bad person to slot into that. But it was it was certainly helpful. Um, but at the time. I'm trying to remember how this went down because I, I, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on it. But, you know, I was just crazy about Burt Reynolds. And I think it was my producer. I don't think it was me. I think my producer came and said, have you thought about Burt Reynolds? Because he he's working. He did a kid's film. And he wants to work. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I sent him a note. And he said, come on over to the house. <laughs> You know, and uh, when I was a little kid, part of uh, part of uh, the character Earl's dad, part of Bert's character was based on an uncle I had who was this tall. He would tell tall tales. Um, it was kind of a tragic character in, in real life um, and a frustrated creative. Um, but he would tell these elaborate stories to my brother and I, you know, that he had found a flying saucer and it was hidden in this barn. And we were going to go look at it one day and all these different things, you know, and he would just. It was really pretty clever, and you could never really tell when it was the story and when it was the truth. And he used to tell us, he goes, boys, I, I, um, I met Burt Reynolds. He wants to meet you guys. Uh, he wants to come up to stay at the, at the camp, which is people that know me online now know I have this farm, which was originally was our deer hunting camp. And with, oh, my God, you know, Burt's going to come up. And we, this went on for years. And so the first thing that happened when I walked in the door of Burt's house, I told him that story. And he didn't miss a beat. He goes, well, shit, man, I've been waiting. Your uncle never, I don't, when, how am I supposed to get there? I've been, I've been waiting to do this for like 25 years. <laughs> and, and then we, God, I wish we would have done it. You know, God, I wish we would have, well, yeah. you know, if he was in the right frame of mind, he would have done it. He would have just been like, it's funny and I'll do it. Cause Bert was funny. He was complicated. But he was very funny. So once Bert was on, you know, it was I never was really worried about getting names because I knew the material. There were reasons why people would be attracted to doing it. And there's always somebody in the business, you know, that they need to check. And, um, but he got into it. Like he was into it big time. And, um, it really, I was more concerned with the kids, you know, I mean, it's just, you got to get that balance of kids. And, and that was, that was, that was a bigger challenge to me. Um, and trying to get, you know, some lookalikes because I wanted I tried to get Jonathan Frid to do it. I tried to get Christopher Lee to do it, um, you know, to do cameo. And they just they didn't want to do the cameo thing, um, which I was bummed out about. And that, but again, I think it underscores at the time that there still was not sort of a, an awareness of just how important this inf- this material was. I mean, I think Spielberg was demonstrating it, you know, like with amazing stories and things. I mean, he was talking about it, but, I, you know, I don't know who was listening. 
Uh, well, you know, it had to it had to be kind of ground level stuff, and I think that's what the internet opened up. You know, you and I met at a show, and I met a bunch of my other friends that I'm still friends with that are in, in this community at shows and stuff. But we really created those bonds online, and before yeah. that, it just didn't happen. You know. Before eBay, we thought there was a lot of very, very hard to find uh, collectible toys from our childhoods out there. And we, we all found out it's like, well, there's one in every other attic for a while, you know? So it, well, it just yeah. changed the whole game for uh, on a lot of levels. Well, and, you know, if I can ever finish the, this massive documentary that, quite frankly, if I put any more money into it, my wife's going to kill me and I just can't get <laughs> the post-production crew to do what I want to do that. That shit will rot your brain, the Monster Kid documentary. I mean, one of we I explored a lot of this, you know, just in these conversations, and so many of those people, I think, were living in a vacuum, other than maybe in the letter columns of you know famous monsters or Monster Times, or right. and then yeah. discovering yeah. that you actually had this giant brother and sisterhood, and that is actually way bigger, I think, than those of us who are active in it understand. I agree. Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably those. And it's probably a more modest figure than we'd like to admit of maybe 1,500, 2,000 people that are really driving and motivating the scholarship, um, you know, and that sort of intense passion. But I think the actual audience and and interest is is enormous. Um, I agree. It's just I agree. It's just not obsessive. Um, No, but but it takes the obsessives to not only create the new stuff, but to delve so strongly into the older stuff that and present it to that wider audience i mean that's and, and that that continues the the growth of it i mean it moves from generation to generation this stuff is this stuff will never go away it will never die because there's just that always going to be that interest in it and it is those fanatics uh of which i i guess i i guess we're all part that want to dig into this stuff and uh bring more people to it and and not to not to shift our our focus back to the to the film we're talking about here or anything, but one of the joys of this movie for anybody who's seen it are those amazing reproductions of the, those fantasy segments, the where you you're you're kind of combining the Universal classics with the Hammer films in the look of the like the the Frankenstein mad scientist uh, lair, the the resurrection of the Frankenstein monster, all of these scenes, the, 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 the Dracula's bride sequence, which is absolutely fantastic. And I, I, there's a part of me that wants to know just how much of the budget did that stuff eat up? Well, <laughs> but, I mean, it, it went over budget. Um, it's the only time I think in my career that I've gone over budget and, um, you know, and I don't, the mechanics of how that happened, uh, I, it's a long time ago and I'm, you know, I just, I thought Michelle Marcelet did a brilliant job. The sets are fantastic. Um, they are, but also what I was kind of going for, uh, somebody, I was at a convention one time and somebody said, you know, why, when you did brides of Dracula, you literally rebuilt the set. And we did, which is insane. If you really think about it, that's like, right. <laughs> like, you know, what the, uh, and then of course the upstairs, you know, we sort of had took liberties with and, and, you know, getting to do that miniature of the windmill, which in one shot I think just looks outrageously wonderful. But they said, you know, and then you have a guy who looks more like a younger Christopher Lee. Why didn't you make somebody look like, you know, um, um, 
what's him call it from uh, David Peel from Brides of Dracula. And I said, well, in Earl's mind, he's reshaping this world to be more like what he wants it to be. Yeah. And um, um, and I was and I was inspired. God, this is embarrassing. I've never said this, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. I had a dream. I was so taken with the Marvel black and white horror magazines in the 70s. And I was so taken with Tomb of Dracula, which is my all time favorite comic book. It's, I think it's mm. incredible storytelling. And obviously the art is just one. Oh, the best stuff in the world. It, it's amazing. It's like how the stories they would cram into like 17 pages. You're like, holy, you know, and. But anyway, I had this dream. I was becoming so obsessed with the whole thing. And I remember I had this dream that I was like with some people and we were at this ruin of a castle and, you know, in, up in, in Romania somewhere. And we had like cornered Dracula, but he looked like Vlad the Impaler. And it was like in Technicolor, like it was, you know, the sun had just set. And it was purple. And he's like, you can kill. I'll never forget this dream. He goes, and you can kill me. But then who's going to help you fight them? And he pointed, and down in this valley, there was this enormous army of Turks coming. And I woke up from that. It's one of the it's one of the handful of dreams from childhood I remember. But it was just, and I and I thought, you know, you're a little kid, you're laying there, you're like 13 years old or something, and you're like, man, I really kind of put some stuff together here, you know, like I kind of reshaped this world the way I wanted it, and it was that was actually was very much conscious on my part that Earl was making it work the way he wanted it. Like if you notice the girl in most, in all of those sequences is the same girl played by an actress named Polly Shannon. And Mm -hmm. she's the girl that the gorilla is holding on the poster in the wall in his room. So he's like casting his fantasies with this girl. Um, And uh, the only one she's not in is the night of the living dead sequence. Cause that's just a dream. He's really dreaming there. Um, like having a nightmare or a night of the living teachers or whatever, you know? Uh, uh, well, Bob, it's almost as like you thought this stuff through <laughs> on, a, on occasion, <laughs> contrary to what my wife might say, yeah. <laughs> you know, think it through. <laughs> um, Those sequences really, really serve to, to sell the, um, the sense of wonder that Earl has. And I know that that also reflects the sense of wonder that you have, Bob, and that you're very talented at sharing. One of the things that I, I recall, I don't know, it, when I was in, in college, one of the things that I had to fill out for some, you know, be here now kind of a class was what is what is your ultimate uh, goal um, in, in, you know, what's your purpose for being here? And after very careful thought for a couple of days, actually, uh, I kind of came up with this. I want to, I want to share wonder with people. I want to share my wonder at these things that, that I, uh, that, that make me who I am with other people. And I get a very strong sense of that from you as well, that that's what, that's what the real reward is in something like Frankenstein and me. Well, these are very nice things you're saying. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, uh, I, I must say though that one of the sort of just fundamentally profound moments of my life was the first time my grandfather took out his eight millimeter projector and played home movies. And I, it was alchemy, you know, it was magic. I'm like four, four or five years old. And I'm like, what the, I mean, this is, this is a thing, you know? 
Oh, wow. You're, you're making me remember that kind of thing from my childhood, too, because when I was growing up, the, the home movies, I had, a, I had an aunt and an uncle who kept just lots and lots of them, and they're the ones who shot them and then would show them to us later on. I, hadn't thought, I haven't thought about that forever, man. You're right. That was a magic thing that just showed you how, how amazing this thing could be. You're well, right. on the color. You know, that old Kodachrome, that color. Mm -hmm. God, I'm so grateful to Joe Boozum for doing, you know, the Monster Kid home movies thing. Just, just, I mean, talk about, talk about curating, archiving, you know, doing something so important. Oh, we should let people know what that is. The, that is, that was a project that, uh, our friend Joe Boozum put out on a DVD years ago where he collected a lot of these, these little movies made by kids, monster movie kids who let their creativity fly. And these are things that would get passed around by, by these fans at times. And he was able to convince all these people to let him collect them all together and put them out on DVD. And it's just magic. It, it really is. And I love that creativity in children. And again, that gets back to the teacher who just can't stand it. This is another one of those UFO landing sites. I'll kill you. What is it? It's Frankenstein's monster, Kenny. <laughs> sure it is. It is. Whatever. Look at, why don't we just call someone to come get him? Because I'm not ready to give him back. Earl, you gotta give him back. He's the real thing, Kenny. He's not yours, Earl. Don't you get it? Him falling off the truck, it's like... It's destiny. It's not destiny, Earl, okay? It's robbery. It is not! They left it, they're gone, I found it. Finders keepers. You've lost it. Look, I'm only borrowing him. When I bring it back, they'll be so thrilled they won't even realize he was gone. It's gonna be worth millions, Kenny. People are gonna pay a lot more money to see a Frankenstein monster that's alive. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you asked earlier, I, I was gonna mention another thing, and I've, I've drawn on this a couple times. One, um, Mark Wheatley and I did a, a comic book called Easy Street, or a graphic novel, and it was about um, two brothers who, one's a comic book artist and one's a, a movie producer and things aren't going well, and they decide to team, team up to do a comic. And anyway, there's a, there's, a, there's a subplot in it that goes back to what I wanted to mention, um, which is uh, some things that were really key. You know, when you have those kind of key moments that you see a truth and particularly when you're young and you don't really want to see the truth, the mother's fear, Miriam Sears fear of, you know, the impracticality of dreaming. Um, yeah. And I've always, I feel so bad for people that don't allow themselves to dream. And, um, cause I think happiness is a choice and in, even you can say, well, yeah, that's great. But what if you're in the, yeah, well, you just, you get as much out of life as you can under the circumstances. Uh, you do the best you can. And, you know, and I know we, I suffer from first world problems and I get all of that, but 
maybe restrict it to the first world. We can try and find happiness. Um, and there's, there's a story told around the table where the where the and it's based on a true story which I modified it where my dad I wanted uh, him to buy me a comic book and he's like I'm tired of these comic books and monsters and things we were at a barber shop and he looked over at the barber and he goes we didn't have we didn't have this stuff when we were kids and the guy's like no we couldn't afford it and and he goes but I had a cousin you know who hmm. his dad had money and he could always get comic books and stuff and my dad goes yeah well I bet he turned out to be like doulas or something and the barber was quiet for a second stepped my brother's hair and he goes no you know he actually became a doctor <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know and I was like and it just pissed dad off and he went and bought us the comic books you know uh, but but the mother's fear I remember when I was doing my fanzine demons the mind i was laying it out in high school i was setting it getting it all it didn't come out till i was a freshman in college but i was putting it together and i was i was seeing this girl I and mean, we were having a it was a pretty intense you know relationship and then and i want to show it to her and i bring these pages to show it to her what i'm doing and the look of terror in her eyes that i would be doing mm. something so impractical it wasn't she wasn't afraid of the content. She wasn't, you know, she liked to go to the drive in and watch horror movies. She didn't have a problem with that. But that I would do something that didn't involve, you know, a nine to five job or, you know, was this just this isn't that she couldn't seem to ascribe value to it. And I felt bad for her for that. You know? Yeah. And it I kinda went, Wow, this is probably not gonna be a long term relationship. <laughs> No. <laughs> um, because this is this is happening, but you know, Anthony, to your point though, I, I'd say that one thing where I had a bit of a crisis was that you know I and all I wanted to do was work on a horror movie. Uh, all I wanted to do was get to work with George Romero, and by the time I was like nineteen or twenty, I had done those things, and I was like, well, shit, what do I do now? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I got to do it, and you know, like six months on Creep Show. I mean, you talk about going to school. I, I can barely imagine. Yeah. I, I, you know what an what an experience to have. Yeah. Well, and again, I don't know why they didn't like hold my head under the water. I, I can't imagine how annoying I was. But George and Mike Gornick and Tom Savini, you know, um, were phenomenally patient. Even Stephen King, although you know Stephen could be he could be a little bit bullying at the time, but he, you know, would indulge me. You know, and talking about movies that we loved or whatever, and you know, he didn't. He he wasn't. He wasn't as passionate about Hammer as I was. And it was pretty interesting. Those were. No, you know, I think all of those names that you mentioned are are, are fellow wonder spreaders. You know, I mean, that's that's where they get the 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 warm, soft feeling inside. The, the same as you and I do. Well, that's the thing. You know, like. Tom, you know, I think about this. I mean, you know, I had Tom's home phone number in high school. Actually, so that I it was in the it was in the phone book. I just looked yeah. it up. But. Yeah, <laughs> but but think about that. He didn't care, you know. And he no, I know. It's a, it was an amazing thing to actually realize this can't be Tom Savini and call him. And he's like, "Yeah, I'm Tom Savini." I'm like, "Why in the hell would you have picked up the phone?" <laughs> and, you know, George's DP, Mike Gornick. I mean, he mentored me decades. I mean, the, the unselfishness, uh, you know, um, I was looking at the, the special thanks of, of Frankenstein and me. I was like sort of 
you know, looking at some of the name checks and like George didn't even know he was in. It was real. Okay. I got a good story. Okay. So, uh, George had <laughs> let me have the footage, you know, from neither living dead. And, um, and I hadn't been in his sphere, you know, for years I'd been, cause I'd left. I didn't get to do day of the dead. I, although I was shooting in Pittsburgh, I did a music video at one point. I came back from LA and did a music video while they were shooting day of the dead, which was weird. Um, but I was at Cannes you know, at the festival. Um, and we were selling, um, uh, Frankenstein, I mean, screening it and stuff. Cause I remember, cause Brian Yuzna was kind enough to come to the screening. I was like, so excited that he wanted to come. Um, and we went to this incredible bouillabaisse restaurant between like Cannes and Nice. I mean, just, Oh my God. And we walked in and people were flipping out because Robert Altman was in there. It wasn't a really big place. And there's Robert Altman. But I see everybody's running towards him, like bothering him over dinner. And I look over in the corner and there's George. <laughs> He's at the other end of the restaurant. And George is there with his then wife, Chris. <laughs> and I walked over and Chris recognized me immediately. And George didn't. And then he said, like, oh, my God, he goes, you got a great review in Variety today. I think it was Variety. And I'd gotten a really good review. And and but it was what I remember. About it was so funny is that in his mind, I was like still 19. And Chris is like George. He's you know, he he's like in his thirties now. <laughs> you know, he, he's he's grown. <laughs> but but it was a wonderful moment. It was a wonderful. It was like one of those. You know, maybe that maybe the universe really is out there doing something for me to to have that. It was that was really special. Well, I have a I have an odd kind of question here, and I it, part of this is kind of a. Uh, a, a larger question about something that may have just been in the air at the time. Uh, I noticed uh, the, rewatching this, and this may have been evident when I first saw this in the '90s too. There are elements of this story of the way this film plays out that feels a little bit like Robert McCammon's excellent novel *Boy's Life*, uh, especially a segment that takes place uh, in a carnival, of course, because we have a car—you know—you have a carnival in this, and that's that's where we end up with. Uh, the Frankenstein monster being dropped unceremoniously into the lap of this kid. There seems to have been some push or some kind of maybe underground movement for the nostalgia that is playing so heavily into the story being told in Frankenstein and me. And it just seems to have been something that was bubbling under for a little while and then seemed to be just start popping to the surface uh, in, in the same period that this film was made. And, I just wondered. I mean, I you know, I just wondered if uh, if you were even aware of that novel, uh, if you had any. Okay, any... I, like you literally sent a chill down my spine. Uh, I had not read *A Boy's Life* prior to creating the film, but I it was the book that introduced me to McCammon, and I became a huge fan. I love his books. Oh yeah, McCammon, Straub, and King. You know, those those are my three guys. You know, Ray Bradbury too, but it's different. You know, I mean, I think Ray Bradbury was sort of like out there, you know, at the beginnings of this. Hell, I mean, even in the beginning of To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee's already sort of picking up on kids loving monsters and things. Right. Um, and yeah. um, but McCammon, you know, there's because I would love to adapt his book Stinger. I think it's just would be a killer movie. But A Boy's Life, I very, very, very much influenced by that book. Um that was all. I guess it was all part of that zeitgeist that was that was us from the '60s and early '70s coming back around in the mid '90s to to yeah. the nostalgic view rather than the participatory view. 
That's it. And but I also think I said mentioned earlier, you know, the documentary I'm trying to get done. But one of the things that sort of emerged from doing the documentary was the concept I call like entering the narrative. Yeah, like people want to extend experiences, and so you get cosplay. You you get you know every kid wanting to make a yeah, zombie yeah. movie, uh, fiction, all of that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they're working there. You know, they want this to extend yeah, fan fiction plays. Into and that. I think that if you look, I mean, if you, uh, you know, really Salem's lot is a monster kid book. I mean, the, the kid is a monster kid. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, the, uh, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think about with Straub, if there are examples of that, but I mean, these, you know, we're, we're digesting and regurgitating this stuff and sort of reshaping it. Well, as far as Peter Straub is concerned, who, by the way, is one of my favorite writers as well, he always feels, when I think of him in these terms, he always feels like someone who was heavily influenced by those things, just like the rest of us, but who is fashioning it into much more mature ideas and themes. There's just something so so adult about his work without ever negating the love of that stuff, but also his his checking of it is much more thematic and under the surface than a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. He's just, he's just such a great writer too. I mean, let's be honest. No, it is. I I think he had a lot of Henry James in his diet or something, you know, or he's more more (laughs) literary because even in his book, the throat, you know, which is kind of, you know, is a riff on the shadow. You know, it's part of the blue flame trilogy, Coco mystery in the throat, which is fantastic. He just keeps going back to the well. Um, but it mm-hmm. is, it's this sort of literary reinterpretation. You know, and it reminds me, I was, I, I wonder, and I'm grateful that I got the chance to actually communicate with him and, ex- and express my gratitude and the debt that I owe him was as a kid in the back of Famous Monsters ordering that A Heritage of Heart book by David Peary. I think, you think you say it, Peary. I've never heard it said out loud. I believe it's Peary, uh, which is, it was the first time that I began to understand the that you could intellectualize these films, the, the, like Hammer films and stuff, and you could it could sort of be elevated, and it could be about something more, and that became sort of a yardstick for me of how I wanted to look at things, and I think I feel that quality in what Straub does, you know, whereas King yeah, takes it and yeah. makes it very accessible to the masses, um, Straub makes you work for it, right. His his themes are his themes are MacGuffins most of the time. I think he's uh, he's got a very uh, a very much more literate bent to uh, to what he's doing. He's yeah. less concerned with plot than he is with getting across a theme or or just a feeling. Yeah, no, it, it is, and he it's it's so much of it is atmosphere and so. I mean, it's just it's wonderful stuff, and I think that's why it's often hard to adapt him. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. because it's just so internal. Um, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. Same here. Well, uh, one, one, this may be an oddball question and I, th- this may be, uh, this may be off base, but I, there are a couple of moments, especially during the Halloween sequence, uh, of the film, which, uh, reminded me of images directly from Halloween three. Was that intentional or was that something I'm just Seeing my, seeing for myself that it doesn't really exist. I've never seen Halloween three. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, man! I you know I just I didn't. You know I, I dropped the ball a lot on sequels and on eighties horror. I'm I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, unless it's like you know, 
the Italian stuff. Or well, let me put it to you this way: there's a there's a couple of those shots uh, that I was alluding to earlier. These incredibly beautiful shots of of the, a sunset happening on Halloween with a line of kids, you know, of masked kids walking along, uh, doing, you know, doing their, uh, trick or treating rounds. And I swear to you, there are at least two of them where I just went, Oh wow. That's like a direct image pull from Halloween three. Now I think maybe it's just that well, you know, that all that stuff comes from. It was just funny to have a bunch of kids dressed up to trick or treat. It was like 105 degrees, you know, it was super <laughs> hot. But again, I was really attracted to the juxtaposition of the imagery, you know what I mean? The desert, with this, this kind of, I, I equate so much of this with like, m- my Europe is is art directed, you know, by uh, you know the universal 1930s. That's my Europe, and that was, you know, when I went to my great grandmother's house, she spoke Italian, you know, and she, you know, she always she had the rosary beads and stuff. It felt like I was walking into uh, an, an inn or something and you know, waiting for Michael Whipper to serve me a beer or something. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, in fact, I got to tell you that, you know, if there's an image that I think sums up how all this stuff imprinted itself on me and my sensibility, it's a cover of, I think it's the last issue of Photon, uh, when Ron Borst, when they did that really killer article on Horror of Dracula and that cover, that painted cover, it's kind of like a Neil Young album, as I recall, I think it is. But you see all the little bits and pieces uh, I, I, the kind of iconography of, of a vampire film, you know, kind of a rosary and things around it. And I just, there was something mm-hmm. about that. I felt like I had that real strong connection to it. Um, and the, in fact, and, you know, a couple of years later, the, the Herzog Nosferatu, that poster, which is my all time favorite movie poster, um, kind of does that same thing. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so dragging those images into the desert, I think, puts the images into sharper relief. The contrast really makes them pop. Does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe it just sounds... It does. Yeah, it does. It's like, yeah. you know, if it, as an illustrator, if you're, you always put your lightest light next to your darkest dark, you know? Right, exactly, it exactly. It's that contrast. It, yeah. Um, but it's... Uh, no, I went back. I, was, I pulled out the, um, the publicity packet today. Uh, I hadn't looked at it. I, I couldn't even tell you. And the credits were all printed out in this. And I don't think I realized that, you know, and I was like, wow, you know. Um, and I and I looked at that I got to put a list of inspirations, you know, and it's by no means, you know, comprehensive. But I'm like, wow, you know, I actually I actually put down, you know, on the end credits, you know, thank you for the inspiration, you know, to Argento and Baba and James Bernard and Claude Rains, who like I just love Claude Rains, and you know and David Peary, you know George and 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 Mike and Tom, and uh, but then like Hans J. Salter, you know, <laughs> and, and of course Terry Fisher, you know, it's just and and Dick Clemenson and Gary Svela, who indulged me as a high school student, all out of proportion to what I deserved. Um, and I'll tell sometimes Dick and I will get on the phone and I'll be like, dude, do you know what you created? And he's like, I just think you give me too much credit. I'm like, no, you actually took time um, with a with an isolated high school kid. And and I don't think you understand the power of when you take some time with children, young people and listen to them and encourage them. And uh, you, you have no idea the the fruit that that can bear, you know. 
Absolutely. Well, as a giant monster kid, I mean, I think you're, you're proof positive that those influences can move to the next generation and possibly even expand. I mean, because the, the, some of the, some of the work you're doing these days, man, it's, you can feel, I can feel the influences because I'm aware of what the, I'm aware of you as a creator, but people coming cold to something like Feast of the Seven Fishes, they're just going to be bowled over by how good the film is and how well written and well made it is. They're not good. They don't have to know the, the underpinnings of that, of that monster kid underneath there. That's making this, you know, non monster story as effective as it is. I mean, you've, the, the 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 fruit that's being born these days is different from the way it was in the '90s for you, but it's all the all the better in a lot of ways because you've had those influences and because of the way they've well, mellow is probably the wrong word uh, because of the way they've ripened. I guess would be, <laughs> perhaps be the best way to put it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I live in a perpetual state of gratitude. You know, I really genuinely do. Um. You know, and that being said, you know, a couple of years ago, someone I was talking to someone, and I was just complaining about something. And this person, wait, 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 you were complaining about something? I think, like, I think I double booked like commercials or something. Like, I had to work. You know, I was going to have to go work. You know, <laughs> this person, I don't think they've gotten to do the things they really would like to do, and they, they, um, kind of said um you know you shouldn't complain uh you you should just realize how lucky you are and i said yeah i'm a lot of things but i am not lucky okay you don't this i don't even know that i believe in the concept i was too stupid to quit and i worked really hard but i'm not <laughs> lucky um and it's like if you do have some success it's like you're not allowed to ever bitch and, uh, you know, I, I get flat tires too, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and have no idea if I'll ever get to direct another movie. I mean, I think I'll probably direct several, but I don't know. You know, it's, that's, I just be, I'm just grateful. I am grateful, but I can still bitch about things. <laughs> I will, I would like to see, uh, flesh and blood, your comic book, f- uh, series, flesh and blood brought to the big screen with about, uh, I don't know, a $200 million budget, but I know that's not going to happen. You know, there was a minute there. <laughs> there was a minute, and we thought um, that maybe something was going to happen, and then it it just kind of fizzled. Uh, you know, these days it would be perfect for uh, for a streaming service. Uh, you know, like ten ten episodes per book. You know. Oh, I, I yeah, I would love it. Hell, I just want to. I'd like to finish it. And Anthony, you were there. When the truth came out that I have, in fact, written hundreds of pages, yeah. finish it. So we just I got to get my my dear brother Neil to to draw it. Oh God, I, I love I love what's there. All three, man, it's just amazing stuff. Well, and I want to finish the backup, the kind of Quatermass type story, you know, the Operation Satan that Bob Hall was drawing so brilliantly, and then you know, Aid Salmon and I were doing the other thing. I mean, I'd love to, you know, I, I'd like to go yeah. back to the Terry Sharp character with with aid adrian salmon um which interestingly has been optioned as being developed as a tv series like everything's out there sort of you know like percolating but now flesh and blood is not at the moment but i think that the time has you know maybe maybe something to move on that i'm not i'm not sure i don't really actively sort of flog the material 
Well, I would say you you mentioned up top when we first started recording that the, the there's the pot there is the possibility that the rights to Frankenstein and me will revert back into a position where you can get them into your hands. Um, to my mind, that is I, when you told me that I, I I just I there was it's like my hair caught fire. I'm like, oh, that's that's amazing because the fact that this isn't available in any digital form whatsoever that isn't some kind of processed version of a VHS tape is is mind bending or possibly off the laser disc. The the thing becomes almost invisible if it's not in some way in, the, in you know if it's not in the past 20 years been made easily available to the public it starts to fade away. And the thing is it's not even being shown on television that that gap where you know it was it's no longer being played on something like the Disney Channel or something like that. It's almost criminal. This is a movie that it, it is a joy. This is a good film. This is not just a good kids film. This is a good film. Period. You, you, your stated goal of trying to make a a family, you know, a family film or or a child's film that the the parents in the room wouldn't wouldn't go mad from having to look at. You, you nailed that. So the question now becomes how much how much do I have to yell at you to get this thing out on Blu-ray? Well, I think, and, and Anthony and I discussed this. When was it, Anthony? Like last spring, I think. We, we yeah. just, you know, and I talked to the producers about it, and I sort of had his ear. And then, you know, COVID's just been, yeah, not great. Yeah. <laughs> and it's there's just a lot of conversations, you know, that aren't happening that hopefully will happen again. Um, but I think you know, it's it's not. I don't think it's even the expense because I think the expense would be pretty minimal to get it done you know unfortunately i wish there were more behind the scenes things and there aren't you know uh, i'm sure there's some stills i'm sure richard usually commissioned like six seven thousand stills because he's just you know uh, richard goudreau who i you know i i don't say this enough and was someone who just believed in me and took massive risks for me and you know is a very successful uh french canadian producer he's a very successful producer i mean and then you know, my brother Jeff came in on this film and then worked, Richard and Jeff and I worked together for a number of years. And um, and then, like, as I said, the business model changed and I didn't want to do children's films anymore. And um, But, you know, I just have to get Richard's ear again and sort of say, hey, look, here's here's how this can function. Because if there's not a widescreen transfer of this film, um, I don't know, I guess like maybe a me TV or somebody would, would run it, but who's, I don't think anybody's even remotely aware, uh, you know, of mining the catalog to do it because yeah. what happens is I think these companies, they buy out somebody else, they inherit all this stuff and they're just not thinking about it. Right. It's a line item on a, on a printed piece of paper in a filing cabinet somewhere. They're never going to look. They're just, they're not going to look. And, um, and I agree with you guys. I think had we been in more of if, – if online had been more developed, if Frankenstein had come out in 2002, I think it would have fared even better. And by the way, the film fared absolutely fine. I mean it – you know, like I – it was shy, it was sort of shocking to me. I didn't even know it for months. But it was like Bound, Seven, and Frankenstein and me were all playing at the Phantom Sporto Festival, you know, yeah. in, in – uh, in Portugal, and I didn't even know about it. Um, no one at the distributor told me, um, and they did not tell me when I won Best Director. And I was wow. like, "Well, damn!" 
you know, it would have kind of been nice to be there. And I was, that was in good company because, you know, I used to produce for David Fincher. I would have liked to and it would say, hey, David, you know, we, you won this and I won this. This was nice. And um, would have been, yeah, would have been nice. Would have been nice. Um, but it just didn't. And I, you know, and I had, I wasn't a very good self promoter at the time either. I didn't, I don't know. I think that's part of the thing about where I grew up was where you're not supposed to brag about yourself. You're not supposed to. Well, I mean, you've talked, you and I have talked in the past about there's a certain desire to allow the work to speak for itself. And that's all well and good up to a point, but there's always something new in front of people's eyes. And so occasionally holding that thing up and waving it around is probably a good idea. And yeah, it's a little alien sometimes and you you can you can feel yourself you know you're doing that inner cringe because oh man am i really am i am i making people think i'm an idiot or an asshole and it's the, the thing is in this case it, this is the, the work is it need if it, it, it needs to be put back in front of people is what i'm trying to say it really does well and i feel that it, like i said way back at the top anything that was made deserves to be chronicled but a lot of people worked really hard on this film and were very proud of it. I mean, it was one of those films where, like, everybody, like the transpo captain was like, yeah, I'm loving this show. You know, um, everybody felt really strongly. And I think people, when we were filming it, they, the imagery was so – look, I can say this because, you know, I borrowed it from really great film. <laughs> I mean, the imagery was captivating, you know, in yeah. those yeah. dream sequences and things. I mean, people really loved seeing those things. And, you know, that deserves to be – recorded and celebrated for no other reason to just sort of remind people of um the impact that that whole rise of this fantasy imagery you know what it did the way it imprinted itself on kids and and really the torrent of creativity it unleashed i mean i was talking to billy bob thornton about it um a few years ago and you know and he was pointing out he's like i mean he he loved this stuff he carried this stuff around in his head and you know, and in Sling Blade, you know, Carl, I mean, his character, I mean, it is based, it was heavily inspired, you know, by the Frankenstein monster and the attraction, you know, the walking with a little kid, like in Son of Frankenstein or whatever, you know, walking with this little kid. I mean, he was, he was channeling that and not subconsciously. I mean, he was channeling it. No, he's a, he's a monster kid too, for sure. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. Um, and I, I mean, the, the wave of people that this, you know, from you know, Spielberg and Lucas and, um, I mean, why do you, you know, why are Cushing and Lee in the Star Wars movies? I mean, come on. Peter Jackson, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Benicio Del Toro. I mean, they are, uh, it, it's just, or Guillermo Del Toro, excuse me. Um, it just, the list is, or even, you know, another, and I'm going the other way because I'm always bringing up Nashi, but I mean, the, even Nashi was imprinted with this stuff. And at least in the early films, you really see it. There's like almost like a naivete there's a childlike sort of attachment to the to sort those of real, monster films to the monsters know. themselves yeah 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 um and that's just it's it's phenomenal the power i mean you know nobody's you know i don't see anybody channeling the three musketeers you know or <laughs> republic b westerns or anything in the way that they're you know don't be hating on tom tyler now I'm not. I look now, he, Captain Marvel and what's right. Yeah, well, he, he, was, he was a damn fine mummy, too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Gambling with the best of them. Well, listen, there's one last bizarre detail 
that uh, is per- completely personal for me with this film. And it's uh, a bit, it was a bit of a surprise. I went back to watch this film, like I say, for the first time in pff, more years than I probably should be allowed to live. And I distinctly remembered something in this movie that is not there. And it freaked me out. I could not believe it. And what it is, is uh, not, not, not to, to go too far into this, but at the very end of the film, during the credits, or right before the credits, we get this amazing image of the Frankenstein monster ambling across the, the Southern California desert. Right. And I can tell you with complete assurance that I would have sworn, sworn that there was in, in that sequence an image of the kids ambling along behind the monster in a single file line across the desert, at least in a couple of shots, as kind of like a final joke. And I swear to you, I I, I I would have I would have attested to it and 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 pointed it out as like a highlight image, and it doesn't exist. I created no. that. No, it does not. And it's it's really funny because Richard, at one point, and I really freaked him out. Richard said one day, he goes, Bob, I think we should add this thing that everyone goes, Earl, Earl, you got to come see this. And they look, and there's the monster walking across the desert. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't, I, I never, we never know for sure if he's alive or not. And I don't yeah. want to do that. I'm just putting it out there. And I said, and besides, have you ever thought about this? I go, if that monster comes to life, the first thing he's going to do is rip that kid's arm out of its socket. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You're right. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, this is, he's going to be mad. He's not going to, you know. Yeah, we can't um, do that. Yeah. Can't do that. That's how I got out of it. But I just, I wanted to preserve that, you know, I don't know. I think I watched too many 70s television movies with, <laughs> you know. That with ambiguous damage. endings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it was showing, I showed uh, Duel to some film students the other day, and they're like, but what do you think? I said, look, I was asking my dad these questions when the damn thing came out. I don't know what it means. It's just good. Let's just, can it just be good? Yeah, and can, and can it be something different for you than it was for the person you were in the room with watching it at the same time? That's the yeah. beauty of it. I don't that know. It is the beauty of, of ambiguous endings. And I think that's, you know, look at, we, we talked a little bit about Ray Bradbury. Most of his short stories have that type of an ending. Yeah. And he's the greatest short story writer of, in history. Absolutely. No, it is, it's just, I, you know, you talk about we were talking about specificity and I always, cause I love Martian Chronicles and yeah. there are some of these moments uh, that are, are so simple, right? They're not big moments. They're little moments and they're so specific and they're just so observant of humanity, whether that's a, you know, ancient Martian humanity or, you know, travelers from earth. Uh, it's just the way he, what did I just read again? I'm trying to remember if it was the Halloween track. I can't remember which I just read again. And I was just, maybe it was Dandelion Wine I read last year. I'm trying to remember. But it just, I, the, it's like he's just always sitting in the corner of the room watching people. And, mm. and noting what they're doing. And then just taking these simple things and making them, celebrating the, the simplicity of it and the, the emotion of it. Well, it is a, another instance of, of an observer who knows that those specific things will be so so generalized for everybody. He, he was smart enough at a, at a young age as a writer to know that it's somehow. I don't know if it was just that he was copying 
techniques from other people, but it's certainly by the time he was a mature writer and writing things like Dandelion Wine, man, it's just, it's in evidence that he knows how to do that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, it's beautiful stuff. And, and by the way, I, I, th- I should, I should, I think that, and I could be wrong. I've never read an interview. I don't know, but I, I think you can obviously see the influences on McCammon, but I think Bradbury was probably a big influence on Straub as well. He was. Um, he was. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I guess he was influenced on everybody. But you know, it, it makes me think, though, if, if you did a list, and you guys think about this, and this is what's so extraordinary, and this window is sort of closing now, just due to time. But when I look back and I think, my God, my I met and often worked with like so many of my heroes, the people that shaped me so much or, you know, like getting to meet, you know, Christopher Lee and, and, and Ray Bradbury and, you know, and, yeah. and of course, George and Forey and, you know, I get to go, I spent a night having dinner and partying with Argento and we just had so much fun. And, you know, it just, uh, that list, I can't even, the list is so long. It's, it's, ex- it's, it's, I can't even populate it, you know, um, or even with people like David Selby, who, you know, my brother and I, we did a, we did this movie with David Selby a, a couple of years ago, and we shot part of it. But we shot it in West Virginia. And we shot part of it on my farm. And my brother was a werewolf nut, you know, like he did the werewolf Aurora model, and he lo- we loved Dark Shadows, and he loved when David played a werewolf. And we didn't know David was from West Virginia at the time. Didn't know he was from here in Morgantown. And now, you know, I talk to him on the phone once a week, you know. And it, but we're doing this movie, and Jeff pulls me aside, and he said can you imagine if I'm here and I'm seven years old, what, you know, we're here with our grandfather camping or something. And you, and somebody comes up to me and says, you will be standing on this property, making a film with David Selby, you know, when you're a grown up, just like my head would have exploded. <laughs> like that's, that's yeah. weird. That's weird. Yeah. That's why I said I'm a lot of gratitude. Absolutely. Hard not to be grateful for experiences like that. Getting to meet your heroes, uh, it's it, a lot of people will say that uh, that uh, sometimes it's a bad idea. But I'll be honest, I've not had I've not had any bad any bad meetings with uh, any of those people. I've had uh, a lot of joy. Uh, the the my I'll I'll never forget the look on uh, Ray Bradbury's face when I handed him a copy of uh, this uh, paperback of these crime crime stories that he wrote early in his career. And he got this look like I just presented him with uh, a dead animal. <laughs> he, exp- he explained that he was displeased with the fact that 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 particular printing had been made, and that he had a he had a rule that he wouldn't sign them. And I looked at him. I said, "Well, actually, you know, all these other books are mine. I brought this copy of this book for a friend of mine who can't be here today. I and I, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I did you know I, I I didn't know. I had no idea. And Bradbury got this look on his face, and he went, "Really." And I went, yeah, yeah. And he says, okay, I'll sign it for you for your friend, but this is this is the only time I'm ever signing this book. <laughs> and I was just like, thank you so much. And it and it was it was for it was it was a copy of a book for a friend of mine. I wasn't kidding him. And it's just you know little moments like that, you know, where you're so glad you got to meet and speak with these people. So yeah. You should have heard me on the phone with Donald Sutherland. I was on the phone with Donald Sutherland one time, begging him to do a film. And he was so busy, and he's like, I only have three days off. I just can't. I'd love to. I love that. And I was like, but you don't understand how much I know your work. I love Castle of the Living Dead. And it got real quiet, and he goes, my God. 
you really <laughs> do know my work. He goes, look, we got to work. <laughs> He's like, how did you know that? And like, because it's actually is important to him, you know. And uh, <laughs> but I was desperate, man, you know. But I was I had my shit together enough that I didn't go like, so do you remember Michael Reeves? Did you talk to Mike? You know, I didn't go that bad. But I was, oh. Although one time Ian Ogilvy, I was at a party and Ian Ogilvy like gave me shit. He's like, I don't want to talk about Michael Reeves. You fanboys are wrong. And he was like, he's not everything you say that he is and everything. And I was like, well, you're wrong. <laughs> you know? I, like, I, I don't which, care that you knew him and I don't care that you were friends. It doesn't matter yeah, to me. Because <laughs> guess what? Which finder general? It's all that. So I got to go. <laughs> Like, Ian, Ian, is a, Ian is a fellow of good cheer, though. I'm sure he probably took it well. You know, he was at oh, he did. He, he did. In 2019, I We were at a Christmas party at Christopher Neems. It was what it was. And it was like all these hammer people and then like Ian Ovi. And he, he indulged me for a while. But, you know, I was just I just had a million stupid questions about Michael Reeves because Reeves, for me, at least Witchfinder General, is like, you know how people hype things up and then you see it and you're like, like everybody the last few years now, they, they're hyping Horror Express, which I love. And I think it's a fabulous score. But I think, Rod, I think you and I talked about this, didn't we? And like, but then they've got to have something to talk about. So now it's this. Yeah. Which Finder yeah. General lives. Which, which Finder General and Dreyer's Vampire, two films took me forever to see that exceeded the hype in my mind. I mm-hmm. think they're kind of masterpieces for me. Well, uh, this this conversation is fast turning into exactly what all conversations that I have with you guys turns into. It's not necessarily on topic. So, folks, let's wrap, let's wrap this <laughs> you up. Cut that part out. You can cut all that out. <laughs> oh, I, I I'm not I'm not cutting that out. I mean, that's believe me, the people who are going to be listening to this are going to be going to be just as amused by these observations and these comments as as they are by anything else. But Bob. I want to thank you for indulging me in coming onto the show and doing this. Uh, the, the 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 desire to uh, get this film out onto uh, to Blu-ray so that it can be, or even if you just, you're right, a widescreen print of it that can be shown on a cable channel would be a good idea as well, or a streaming channel for that matter. Um, this this needs to happen, and anything that we can do to encourage that along, man, just just give me a call, Anthony. Yes, sir. Thank you for getting rooked into this this bizarre conversation with two people that you don't even like. I mean, well, it's been a pleasure, even though I don't like you. <laughs> I did, of course. I like both of you. Are, are are you sure? Could could you write that down? I'd like to get proof. Absolutely, no problem. <laughs> I I will have my attorney contact yours. <laughs> awesome. All of these things done done through legal means, of course. <laughs> Friends. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks a million, guys. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff Victoria Price and Joel Hodgson. 
listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. And there you go. I was so happy to have Bob and Anthony jump in here to talk about Frankenstein and me. Uh, it was a great it was a great reminder that that movie is not available digitally. It's very strange to know that um, you have to seek that one out on the uh, the old illegal market. Um, pieces of it floating around on YouTube and stuff like that. It's really weird when you consider who's in the movie and that it was quite beloved and award-winning and um, just all-around great little movie that, as Bob, as Bob said, won't drive you crazy if you're an adult. And uh, is geared toward making kids really enjoy it as well. It's one of those, um, it's a kid's film that won't make you crazy. And it's just a solid monster kid influenced piece from the 90s that seems kind of lost to the winds. Hopefully that will not stay that way. Hopefully Frankenstein and Me will eventually come out on Blu-ray and uh, let a whole new generation of people get to enjoy it. So once again, thanks to my two co-hosts this time around. And uh, just in case anybody's aware, uh, or not aware, I should say, Anthony Taylor, uh, who's on this show with us, uh, is affiliated. Actually, I think he uh, is one of the major backers, major runners of an Atlanta convention called Monsterama. Uh, this year it's happening October the 9th and 10th. Uh, down there at the Atlanta Marriott, uh, he has um, he's managed to finally convince me to come down this year, uh, being all vaccinated and such, so I feel safe doing so. But he got me down for a specific reason. If you are a Paul Nashie fan, which would mean you know a monster film fan with uh, a bent toward the European slash Spanish end of the thing, um, I am hosting screenings of three of Paul Nashie's films down there. These are uh, these are film prints of these movies, too, by the way. I'm kind of excited to meet the guy who owns the prints of these movies. It's kind of, uh, kind of a thrilling thing. You don't get to see these things on the big screen very frequently. But I'll be hosting screenings of Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, and Count Dracula's Great Love. So, um, yeah, looking forward to being in Atlanta. Looking forward to doing a little bit of traveling there as you might expect, and uh, really thrilled to see these movies on the big screen with a crowd. So if you're in the Atlanta area, or if you just want to travel to Atlanta to go to Monsterama, join me, uh, and Mark Maddox will be somewhere in the building too, so, you know, there is that aspect of things. But uh, check out Monsterama in Atlanta, October 9th and 10th. Uh, Be glad to see you there. Come up and tell me that I look just like you expected, (laughs) but hopefully, hopefully better than that. Anyway, thank you once again for listening to the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And we'll be back with, uh, I think Sherlock Holmes is up next. So keep those things coming. Let me know what you think. And uh, once again, just thanks for listening to the show. (laughs) 